1: Excited. Excited for you. Partially
0: excited.
1: Hello, welcome to Partially Excited. My name is Aaron Down. We have a superwoman. Her name is Gazelle Jabin. Holy moly, what this woman hasn't done from best-selling author to creating her marketing business, dancing and everything you want to do. Hello, welcome to the show, Gazelle. How are you today?
2: I'm very good. And Aaron, thank you so much for having me. And wow, well, (laughs) there are so many facets to me that I even am trying to figure out
1: which one am I with today. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. do you mind if i refer you to gaz or gazelle which you can
2: call me gaz for short as you've become a friend i usually say to people i'm gazala jabin but my friends call me gaz but it will not answer to gaza so there you go you can call me (laughs) Gaz, tell us about growing up in pakistan yeah so of course i was born in pakistan and i grew up like a little tomboy i wasn't there was no girliness about me and we had mango trees and i would be climbing those mango trees and trying to pick the fruit that was not ripe and get told off for it i used to see the women cooking chapatis in the tandoori ovens and i was like i want to go as well and they're like no your little hands if you go trying to put a chapati in there you'll fall right into the oven so i was like they used to wait till all the chapatis were cooked and then the tandoori oven was calmed down and they would give me a tiny little ball of dough and they say right okay you make your chapati and we'll allow you to put it on this top layer here so yeah it was um it was one of those little intriguing and inquisitive little self of mine that really wanted to learn about this and about that and how do you do it and questioning. And yeah, so, so it was very country bumpkin life lifestyle of mine because I, I actually was brought up by my grandma more so than my mum and dad. They were in the city, but I was in the village. So that's why I call it country bumpkin life. But yeah, so uh, a wonderful childhood with my grandma and, uh, and, and everything about village life, uh, community side, uh, sitting with the seniors and asking them things and learning things. But that's my childhood, as I recall from being a kid.
1: Is that where your curiosity came from to, in edu- for education and learning?
2: Yes. I think so, because one of the nicest things I can share with you was we had a little senior lady. She was going a little bit blind herself, and but, you know, as frailing body as well. she. You know, I used to say, well, could she at least teach me the alphabet of my language, Urdu? And she used to say, yes, of course, I would love to. But would you then be kind enough to do me a favor back? So we had a little trade-off. And the trade-off was... If she taught me the alphabet, I would wash her back or wash her hair for her because she couldn't reach her back to wash herself. So we had this lovely trade-off and she would teach me and I would wash her back as well afterwards, after my lesson. And she was grateful for that little help that I had. And I was only like four and a half, five years of age there. And that was my part of the education that that, that was really where I started was to want to learn to know this, yeah. It's amazing. And what did your grandmother do? So my, my grandma was just part of the, the, the life at home as housewives used to be. She was a widow and, um, you know, cooking, cleaning her little life out in the village and, you know, chin wagging with the neighbors and supporting each other. And just, just a very simple little Pakistani life as a female at home to do as as women did back then. But uh, But she had a lot of love and she always took me down to the bazaar and and you know what it is, when you go to the markets and that, and we kids, we like sweeties. And the kind of sweets that we used to get given were like fennel seeds coated in candy, right? Like sugar candy, like that, and well, that was our treat. And But really, what they were trying to do was give us fennel to eat, but it was candy coated. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my trip out to the bazaar. <laughs> yeah. it was quite funny. Forgot about that. I've not shared that one before with anybody.
1: And what did your mom and dad do?
2: So, my mom and dad, yeah. So, my mom was a, also a housewife, and uh, my dad was teaching. My dad taught Arabic and Urdu. My dad was actually, my dad had decided that to, to get also a better life with education. Some of his closer family members and other relatives and friends had moved to England. And so of course my dad thought, well, if I need to give my family my, you know, better lifestyle over there. Dad had already seen part of UK. In his younger days, and of course, when I was born there and dad could come back, he also realized that, you know what, I need to bring my family here and, and help them educate in the British way and create a future and work and everything. And and that was the idea then that we were all going to go to England, to UK, to, to have a, a bigger, better life. And I, I remember the day I left Pakistan at six and a half years of age. My grandma had cooked tandoori chicken for me, wrapped it all up. And uh, she said, when the airport, Islamabad airport, she said, you have this and just remember your old grandma, never forget me. And I remember leaving an oil lit lantern village life. And the next thing is, I'm in Islamabad airport eating my mom's, my grandma's little tandoori uh, chicken there and remembering she said not to forget her. I remember from that little moment, then arriving at Heathrow Airport in 1976, and I remembered it was like from village life to suddenly arriving in Blackpool, because there were lights everywhere at Heathrow Airport. It was, I'd never seen so many lights. And that was my first little visualization of what could be like physically seeing light in this big way.
1: Yeah. Wow, going from one country to another, and it must have been quite exciting and scary at the same time. Yeah, it was actually. It was it, well, it was like like a, an adventure, the
2: unknown adventure, um, like following the yellow brick road kind of thing in a way, really, right? Yeah, it's so totally, totally different. So we were, we'd arrived, Dad was there greeting us and ready to, you know, get us. So it was my mum, my... My two, well, my three brothers actually, my two older brothers and my younger brother and myself on mom's passport. We used to have this like family passport. We arrived, and our first destination. Of I'll share something funny with you. When we arrived, dad lived in um, burnt upon Trent, which is the um, Marmite town, and and also famous for the Pirelli tires. So my dad worked for Pirelli tires at the time, and in the factory. That's because. English was not good for him at that time but that was like factory worker there that's what he could do so we arrived and the next thing is like we were desperate to to go to the toilet and I remember they they said oh it's outside there and and there's a light out there and and just just go in there it's there and this is the funniest thing Aaron so it's back to the old outhouses that they used to have in the days and I remember walking out in my little six and a half year old little self finding out where this toilet thing is. And then suddenly I open this outhouse door and there is a thing called the toilet on a pedestal. Now, back from where I grew up, we used to go down to the field and get on with it. And suddenly I'm finding this thing on a pedestal and, and I'm thinking, how does one climb this thing? So my little head was like, oh, so then I saw a milk crate. I got the milk crate, put it upside down and tried to climb on this toilet. And then you had like this pipe and then this whole piston tank thing at the top, water tank. And then I'm like, oh, my goodness. I didn't like the whole awkwardness of this challenging task just to go to the toilet. And I had been gone a long time because I didn't realize I, I couldn't like get off in case I felt I was going to fall in. Anyway, then my auntie came out and she sort of realized I was stuck. Why had it been so long? And they just opened the door and just started laughing. Well, I didn't find that funny at all. But I said, I want to go back to Pakistan. I don't like the English toilets. This is not where I want to be. Oh, please take me home. These are horrible. These toilets, why do they make it so awkward? Why do you have to climb a toilet? <laughs> and it's like my auntie said, you don't need to climb the toilet. This is how you use it. And she just kind of, she didn't do anything. She just showed me how you sit on it, like on a chair, and I went, "Oh, well, maybe Pakistan needs to sort themselves out then." <laughs> so, oh, I was so funny. That uh, that was the that was the funniest little part I remember so well of my little little self learning these new experiences to the new country. It was like alien to me, really. But
1: yeah, that was the first part. <laughs> It's fascinating how in one country, you're, you're, like you just described, you're used to one way, in another country you're used to the other way, and it's like, how do you use this and how do you use that? And it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it was. I think for me, the, the most
2: interesting thing that happened as part of an educational learning, really, was, was when I suddenly found out. That in the daytime, um, we went out to sort of where we lived to see people. And I realized that my little brown skin and then other people were fairer than me. And I was like, why am I not the same color as them? So why, where am I? And honestly, you know, people don't realize that for a young six year old child's mind, it must there's a lot of things go through it. And And I remember coming back from a day out, seeing a lot of Western people and my coloring not fitting in with the scene and realizing something different about me. And my auntie was cleaning up and she had spilt some bleach on the uh, floor which was the carpeted tiles and the carpeted tiles changed color. And my little mind thought color change. And I remember getting the bleach and putting it on the back of my hand to see if my brown skin changed white. Can you believe that? Bleach on the back of my hand thinking it's a color change. And of course, that's quite scary, really, when you think that's why they say children, you know, these bottles that are sealed tight so children don't come into these difficulty areas with, you know, chemicals. And that was one of my things. But but it was kind of scary. It could have been more dangerous. I could have been drinking it. but. On a, on a fun note of drinking, my auntie had made us lime cordial, and we, we, she just added water to it. Uh, that some people have lemonade and tonic water, but she made it with water. And I watched her put this lime cordial in the glass. Then she added water. Then the following day, I thought I like that lime juice drink. I'm going to have some myself and make it. So I got the glass, I put the green liquid in there, and I put the water in it, and it frothed up. It was very liquid. I couldn't read, could I? (laughs) So so I was like, my auntie didn't make a drink that went this frothy, but my drink has gone frothy, and it didn't taste the same, and that was not the best plan in the house. Those were some of my
1: young, funny things that I did. When you eventually got to learn English, did you continue uh, thriving and realising, I want to become education and curiosity to learn? Yeah,
2: I mean, uh, we went to school, but it, well, I wasn't like, although I'd arrived six and a half years of age, it wasn't until about 10 because there was a kind of a weaning process into understanding some words. And my three first words to a sentence was, I want this. And of course, those have never changed because I still use those three words I want this and I go and get it. So we, we, we were um, in school and we weaned in nicely. And then I went in, then we moved to a place called Derby because my dad worked for Rolls Royce at the time in the factories there and um, my dad just got us a house and a better life and education and I went to a girls only school when I was in primary then I went into secondary school and then I realized that education was fantastic and learning all these things was just empowering and I I just wanted more of it and and then then one day my dad came home and said oh you'll be pleased to know we've spoken to the headmaster and headmistress there uh, deputy headmistress and they and they said that you girls can wear traditional Asian outfits. So you can have your head covered and your, your tunic top that in Asian style and all the rest of it. And I said, Dad, you mean I can't wear my pinafore dress and you want me to wear my Asian outfit in an English school? Well, I'm not going to wear it. My dad was horrified that I actually argued about this. And I said, He said, well, Are you arguing with me? I said, Well, it's not arguing, Dad. I just don't understand why I need to do it when I'm wearing something in keeping with school uniform. And he said, yes but it's our cultural outfit and and you've got to keep in in good you know way with with the whole thing and and it's, it's your dignity and you covered yourself up. I said, yeah, but I'm covered up anyway, Dad. Anyway, Dad said, we'll have none of this. Don't argue. But that's what I said. Listen, Dad, I'm not going to wear it. And I said, and i now got a good valid reason. you saying that we should be good girls to keep ourselves head covered to the toe and all the rest. I want you to do as a favor, Dad. I've validated my reason, but you can validate yours. You go, drop us off at the front gates. choose any day in the week, go at the back of the gates and look at the girls that gone in front gates, head covered. Look at them from the back gates and then you'll realize. And of course, what happened was the good girls coming from holy backgrounds, they were going into the school gates at the front in the morning with their head covers all goody-goody. And then about mid-morning break at school they would meet up with their boyfriends into mini skirts and english clothes and no head cover and and gone with their boyfriends out in their cars for the day and i and my dad could see this and when we came home i said to my dad you see dad i don't need an outfit to be a good girl the good girl is in my heart and i've not taken any absenteeism at all in school so please don't tell me i gotta wear the outfit you've just seen the girls that wear it what's happening and i'm sure you don't agree with it my dad couldn't argue that was my first time I realized I had a voice and I was like oh my god it validated it was justifiable and that's when my strength came in and
1: fueled where I'm at today how did the feel find your voice for the first time
2: actually to be honest Aaron for me although I realized now that was a little voice but I only spoke what my true heart was thinking and feeling it's the truth there was the power in the truth that was where it was and i realized if i'm honest about something i believe in something people can't shut me up because that's what i'm feeling that's what i'm saying and and that's the truth of the matter from where i come from and that was where really the power was in the voice
1: and people don't f- realise how powerful this voice box is until they vo- vocalise their opinion that they feel from the heart. That's exactly the power and the magic is if they're coming from the place
2: of heart, true authentic self, true sincere self-belief, that is nobody can make you believe anything any different, that can beat you, they cannot change the way you think and feel. And if people speak from that space, then there's a massive power in the voice from that. And that what I realised at that age of, I don't know, what, what age must it have been
1: about? In secondary school, I don't know, 12, 13, something like that. Yeah. Um, I was listening to you earlier, uh, you did an interview a while back, and you talked about primacy to expression. Where did that come from? My story has become, literally, from suppression
2: to expression was that I came from a society that they suppressed the women um, because Muslim women were, you're not heard. you got to be head covered and, and only speak when you're spoken to. And and it, you were suppressed in a cultural society, right? And I remember that although I loved education and I, I said to, When I finished my studies, my compulsory years, I wanted to go to college and my my big brother said to me, you don't need to go to college or study any further. Why would you want to do that? I mean, after all, you've done your your compulsory years and suddenly you're going to be sent to Pakistan and marry some elephant driver and and, and get on with your life over there like a good Muslim girl. And then I said, why would I want to do that? Maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I want to study. He said. Well, you're being cheeky and you're arguing back. I said, I'm not being cheeky. I'm just saying, I want to study further. He said, you know what it is? You're getting too big for your boots, and if you carry on, you're going to get a smack. I said, oh yeah, and who's going to do that? And my brother said, I am. I said, well, I'm going to speak anyway, whether you like it or not, you're not my dad. And you know something? My brother actually gave me a physical hit in my and my jaw and could have broken not only my jaw, but my, my cheekbone. But my brother just landed me a fist in my face because I spoke out. And one thing I realized was that I came from a society culture from suppressing the women. But for me, I was not ever going to be suppressed. And I fought it. I told my dad about it. I won my, my battle with that, I went into, sec- into um, college, I went to study further education, I even landed myself in university, and that is when I realized that no way am I going to be, yes, I've come from suppression from a culture, but I'm not going to be suppressed, but from suppression of a society, I'm going to be expressive, and that's exactly where the voice, the story, and my power of being a, an outspoken Muslim woman that I, that I am today. Wow, that's
1: that's amazing. It just shows you that the power, it comes back to power again, you know?
2: And you know something, it's like that little line of mine from suppression to expression has evolved because it's from suppression to expression to now making an impression and helping others voice theirs too. Where did that come from? My mom used to say to me, I wish I had the education, I would have made different choices. And I realized that when you are educated, it does empower you to make more, more choices wider because you have better knowledge and you can decide better. It's only when suppression is limiting your choices. But so I, I studied further. I worked on. I, I got my job, my situation, my whole future, you know, going forward. And of course, then I realized that I'm as British as any British person. Then suddenly, my Asian culture was still my ground roots. But I suddenly realized I'm in a very Western society, and Western society is also encourage education and, and and voice opinion and choices. And and I realized my first little job that I had was. All my friends were earning double the money uh, and I I wasn't even supposed to be earning any money. My mom and dad felt after education, I need to stay at home and I don't need a job that they could provide for me. And I was like, i oh, no, I actually can earn more than my, my friends are doing it. Well, I'm no worse off than any of my friends. And and I decided to ask for a pay rise, move the job. And sure enough, again, I, I moved in career advancement and I realized, oh, my God, there is so much power to ask. If you don't ask, you don't get and I just asked and I got and it just it fueled me little drip beads of these voices, this expression, this speaking out and saying just kept fueling the growth. Yeah.
1: Wow. And when you went through university, um, did you feel that growth and being able to feel a proud woman being able to achieve the degree that you wanted to, to do? Well, when I was registered to do The university
2: part of it, what happened is I did something in part way through my education was that I did something that's frowned upon in my society, which is that uh, Muslim women have arranged marriages. And for me, I fell in love with an Englishman. That was you don't do things like that. And the company that I I was working with was one of the directors. I had left the company, by the way, but the the director and I, you know, we'd connected afterwards. He'd sold out his company and we connected afterwards. And anyway, long and short of it is I fell in love, basically, right, with an Englishman. Muslim girl in love with an Englishman frowned upon. And this is where the biggest changing part came in my life. So my Englishman, Martin, said to me, hey, I don't know about you, but I'm in love with you and I want to marry you. How do I go about asking your father's permission to ask for your hand in marriage? I said, well, if you want your neck off the chopping block, on the chopping block and off the neck and your head off beheaded, you're going about it the right way because we can't do things like that. He said, "What? We're, we're in the UK. They don't do things like that. I said, well, I'm from Pakistan and they do do things like that. They literally will chop your head off. And he went, don't be silly, this is the UK. I said, nope, this is what will happen. He said, how do I go about it? I said, well, maybe you might have to become a Muslim and all the rest of it. I said, but I know that we'd probably end up both being dead. But long and short of the story there was that I knew that if I spoke to one of my Muslim peers of the mosque and asked them how to go about it the proper way, then it may work in our favor. So Martin said, all right, I'll let you ask about that. So I spoke to some of the Muslim peers and I told them where it was. They they kind of had an interview with me, like, are you sure, you know, this is not really, a Muslim thing. I said, Yes, but Martin's willing to become a Muslim to marry me. So what's wrong with that? Oh right, Izzy. Okay, we'll speak to your father. So I remember this one day when I had seen Martin, I said, Hey, this might be the last time you and I ever see each other. Tomorrow I could be dead. He said, What? I said, No, well, I mean we're gonna the priest's gonna speak. I mean I could be a, it could be a dead body, but the thing is, I'd made provisions with my family doctor, uh, close friends, I said in the event that I'm dead, please make sure you call the police because this will be honor killings situation going on here. So I remember that night I went home and uh, the, sure enough, the call that I had arranged for the Muslim priest rang my home. I actually answered the call and, and this priest said, um, you know, is Mr. Qayyum at home? I said, no, he's at work. He said, could you tell him he's needed at the mosque urgently? We have an urgent meeting. My dad came home. I told him about the message. He went to the mosque, he came back, got my mom to the other room to speak to her, and I knew what it was. I was in the kitchen cooking, and as I was cooking some chapatis, my mom came in the kitchen, she said, turn that gas off, come inside, sit down and look at me in the face. I knew what was happening, but before I went in there, I remember this was the most terrifying moment of my life at 20 years of age. I opened the drawer of the knives in the kitchen, and I thought, you know something? I could be dead meat now, really. Uh, So I had said my prayers and kind of a a goodbye to the world because I realized anything could happen now and I I really could be dead. And I sat with my mum and my mum said, your father's been called to the mosque to be told that you want to marry a white man twice your age. Tell me that's not true. Aaron, I had two choices. Choice one, say it's not true and find a moment and then elope with my Englishman. Or say it's true and face the music and have my neck off the block. So what did I do? I sat and faced the music. I'd said my prayers and you remember earlier on I said when you speak the truth from your heart in something you believe, the power is within it. I sat, I looked at my mum in the face and I said, yes, it's true. And then I was waiting and ready for that death of the life of mine just happening right in front of me. Fortunately, that the death did not come my way. Um, My mum and dad were very uh, ashamed of me what I had declared. And then they, they wanted to, I'll give you the brief of it, but long and short of it is that they, they didn't know what to do about kill me or what to do with me. But then they just said, look, get out of our sight before we do kill you. And uh, then they had decided that we're going to send a marriage proposal to Pakistan and have me arrange marriage. And within days they were prepping for Pakistan. And within a couple of days, my dad said, you go find some temporary work because I cannot bear to see your face in the house. I went to work Uh, martin had met me at work and said i cannot allow this to happen this is uk this is today today's we're in the modern day here this cannot happen but i just want you to tell me one thing do you love me and will you still marry me and i said well we can't he said no 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 Uh, we're not talking about the word can't we can do whatever we want i just need to know that you want to marry me i said well of course i can and i want but i He said, "Okay, will you meet me here tomorrow? Following day, Martin handed me a piece of paper that said it was a special marriage license. I said, does that mean we get married on the 10th of August? He said, yeah. I said, that next week? He said, no, it's the day after tomorrow. And on the day of the 10th of August, 1989, I left that door of my house with my little car, with my stuff in the boot of the car to elope. Because I had tried to do it. And if I'd stayed longer, I'd have been sent to Pakistan and married off over there and what have you. That day my car wouldn't work and I'm praying like crazy. Eventually the car worked, got to the top of the road, parked outside the mosque, said my prayer while the engine was still running. And this is what I said. I said, Dear Allah, if there was ever a time I asked for any any wish, any prayer for me to have fulfilled. Today I ask for prayers of strength to let me do what I want to for once in my life for me. I just need your guidance, your support, your strength to carry me through this journey. Amen. We say, Amen. Anyway, got in the car, met Martin. That afternoon, we were married. We went straight to the police station after the marriage and we put a police protection support from there. We had full police protection of the UK police. Our house was alarmed. We were staying in hiding for three and a half months with full police protection. It took quite some time for things to kind of work the way the family were out to want to kill us and lots of in-between stuff, but that's in my book that I'm doing, which is the trilogy, which is the story from pakistan to england transition from eastern culture to western and then the elopement and and that is being put in the in the book and And then we stayed in hiding and it took about four and a half years before my family accepted the marriage in the end. And that was because my grandma came over to England to have an eye operation. And she said, I don't want to have the operation till I've seen my girl. I sent her as a little six and a half year old. She's now married, grown woman. And if the operation goes wrong and I will never, ever see her, I cannot take that operation till I see her. And then they brought her to the house and my grandma saw me and she said, oh, so they called you an ugly duckling back then, but look at you now. And she was said, she said, I don't care whether you married a green man, yellow man, pink man, whatever man, I'm just happy that you're happy and you have my blessing. And that was the beginning of the family coming together. Yeah.
1: Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? How how we all, how each family has their different circumstances and then realise it all comes back together, which is amazing. While in college, did you study business or sports science? Yes, it was actually, I did study business studies because this was my little business head thinking,
2: okay, business is everything, everywhere, business is growing, let's study that. So that's what I did. And I studied the business diploma, I further educated and increased my level of knowledge in many areas from IT side, marketing side, sales side, and when I was actually then married, and I, I remember when I, at 21 years of age, I was um, a director of our estate agency, Real Estate. And I was like, I'm a director. And I don't know about running a business. I've studied business studies, but where do we go? Anyway, we had bought a franchise. So there was good systems that actually helped to set that in. I became an estate agency valuer. I qualified in that area. I qualified as a financial independent financial advisor. And I was suddenly found myself at this very young, 21 years of age, doing mortgages, finance and everything, building a portfolio, valuing properties. And I took it like duck to water. Actually, I was very surprised. And we then had the biggest portfolio of properties for stock uh, on the market and university lettings and owning a properties developing properties with martin and we just were running the most efficient top business over there in the third you know largest city in the in the uk in, in manchester and It just was like, wow, ah, this is amazing. This is where I was meant to be. And that's how my business head grew. So yeah, 20 years of age, I left 21 years of age. I was a company director. I then went into direct sales side of property, valuing, et cetera. Then I took time out to have children. When I went back into the world of work after children, I realized that I'd been earning good money, but to get a local job after being a mum normal jobs were basic salaries, and I was used to good salary. And the only good salary was direct sales. And I was like, I don't know much about direct sales in that side. But suppose I didn't know about valuing properties; it's just a matter of learning. And I took that job as like, I don't know what I'm going for, but let's go for it. And I found that I had the skill to sell, and I became a six-figure income earner in no time at all. And I realized I was creating sales volumes increasing and, and then I was made a divisional head of a direct that one of the largest direct sales organizations in the UK. And that organization in the department of my division, they were producing about £189,000 worth of sales a month. And I was asked to call in to help them to increase it. 95% of that sales force was men. So coming from a Pakistani Muslim background, I'm suddenly dealing with man world at senior level. And they were like all like chit chatty way. And I was like, I need to nip this in the bud. I went in the in the team and I said, I'm not here for you to like me, love me, be all flattery with me and keep your testosterone in order. But let me tell you one thing, I'm here because this division is not doing good in sales. And I'm here to change that. At the end of this seven days, half of you are gonna be leaving. So show me which half am I keeping. You got the appointments, go do your thing. Anyway, there were 60-odd in that particular division. At the end of seven days, half I had to get rid of, and they're like, oh my God, she wasn't joking, was she? And then with the half that was left, half the workforce now, and I kicked the 189,000 pound worth of sales, um, business revenue generated in a month to just short of a half a million with half the workforce, and they realized she's got some magic in there in what she's done because she does her own sales she's got the team doing it she's doubled up the sales volumes and more and she's half the workforce so she's she's doing something good the only difference was that in the working world as good as it was and taking that helping that company to go from 9 million to 23 million i realized that i didn't like being told what to do by people and i thought i don't need to take this and that's when my little my little strength came back into this little voice and this power of within the gas and i thought oh I I know what the market needs are but I don't need to be told but I'm going to do my own so I said to my husband hey I, I just left the work and I said I will not be told by anybody what to do um I resigned my Martin said to me, he said, you just resigned, you haven't even got another job. I said, hey, don't worry about that. I know what we need to do. From that moment, Aaron, is my little entrepreneurial head kicked in. I got a pen, a piece of paper, I scribbled a doodle, and I took that thought of market need on Sketch, and I created and manufactured a product designed in a way that was so bespoke, so special, so unique, that I never had a problem in closing deals for people to say, I want to think about it. And I created it, manufactured it, set up the business, everything Martin gave me full support of the business and then I even had the government of my country in Wales offering me up to half a million funding to get the operation of works going and I realized I'd done something remarkable and from somebody who was just suddenly walked out of a job and suddenly I'm putting over 40,000 pound in a business of hours in a week was like okay I don't know right here and that was many years ago so that's when my journey of business entrepreneurial had kicked
1: in. What is the skill of selling
2: the skill of selling isn't actually selling it's actually finding out what the needs are and creating enough of an understanding that is justifiable for them if you put the facts and figures and understand the people's wants and needs that was simplicity
1: to run that success what was your passion and drive to go from you know cut half the team and build that company to where it was and realize this is not for me i want to go build my own company instead
2: it was really purely because I realized that there there is a market need and there is that we need to do this because I was, you know, when you understand there is a market need for this and if you've got that determination within you to to make it happen because you know the industry i so saw i knew where to go how to make it what to do because i learned the trade i kept the education and the knowledge i did my homework i did my research i did my studies i put lots of figures down i remember going to the bank and the bank said so how much money do you want to um to, to borrow from us you know how much should we lend you you know i said no 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 i don't want any money from you as the bank no 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 i said my business here is gonna run without any borrowings. And they went, what? I said, no, I have that structure in place. All I need the bank to do is give me a bank account so I can take transactions, payment cards and merchant services, but nothing from the bank. And they couldn't believe I remember the bank manager lady, she said to me, these figures are really like good figures. I mean, like we don't normally see this kind of thing in in our banks here of people just turning up and knowing all this. Where have these figures come from? I said, well, they were not plucked up from thin air. This file here, I knew you were going to ask me the question. Here's the file of actually sales created, what I've done, what I've achieved. And the figures you see are conservative. And this is my first and second year projections. But I see us getting quicker than the 12 months. And in six months, they found me and they said you're already way ahead of the target. I said I know. I told you they were conservative, and they they'd never seen anybody so sharp in that way to, to business, you know, put the, the figures like that to a bank and dictate the terms.
1: Yeah. Wow, you're you're starting to become a powerhouse, but and the building and the construction has started there. What was the name of this company? It was our health and mobility solutions. That's
2: that was it. It was in Martin's initials. In our property, Martin's initials were HMS, which was, you know, our, uh, you know, uh, property services um, over there in Manchester. And we followed the theme because that was a success, and we thought this is good, good as well. So health and mobility solutions
1: ran in Martin's initials, HMS. Wow! And after that's up and running and being probably successful, where did it go after that?
2: So the success was fantastic, and you know what, life—you never know of the unexpected turns and tragedy hits us all, and. Within our business that was fine and rocking and rolling and then Martin had a near fall outside our front door of our house and when somebody trips or or slips and they're about to fall but they either fall or they stop themselves falling. Martin tried to stop himself falling on the floor. It was just a slope, just a little tiny slope, and he slipped his foot on it. And what he, what happened is his knee swelled up. Next thing is he's in hospital with a swollen knee. He torn a ligament, created fluid retention. He was admitted in hospital. He had a needle in there to aspirate the knee, a needle to a steroid to stop the pain. Unfortunately, he contracted through that procedure MRSA bug, and Martin was critically ill in hospital at near death's door. That changed the logistics of our business, our work. We had mom-in-law, a 90-year-old living with us. We had the three young children. Martin was taking care of them while I used to do the major part of the work. And suddenly, the main carer of the family home now was critical and trying to survive from that procedure that he had. And so I had to then take care of the kids, then mum, and it got to the point because Martin was so ill, we had to actually close the door of our business. And that changed the logistics. And after that, it was then I became the carer for being a mother of the three children dependent on us, caring for a disabled husband and caring for the senior elderly person in the home and that changed everything from a financial good times to a financial bad times and then it just got from bad to worse bad to worse and whilst martin was undergoing lots of treatments and getting him to survive he did survive but through a lot of drugs that he had to take for killing the mrsa bug and in the procedure of those years then one day when he said to me you know wifey you know i married you for your curries I don't want them curries anymore, they're not settling with me. I said, hey, if that's the only reason you married me, you trying to tell me you want to divorce me. He said, no, 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 we've come this far, we carry on. It's not that, it's just my tummy won't cope. After a few tests and everything, we had the specialist sit with us and said, Martin, we've had the results back and unfortunately, we've diagnosed you there, we've taken some samples, and um, you have advanced stage of pancreatic cancer. We didn't know what that meant at that time. We said, what do you mean, advanced stage? He said, it's terminal. So we just were then our world completely crushed right in front of us. And I remember walking like a zombie with Martin going home and we were gonna find out what our prognosis was of it. And that was on a Wednesday. On the Friday, we went to see the oncologist who then said the current treatment for pancreatic cancer was 11 months survival at the base of where Martin is with the advanced stage, but we'll see how we go. And a couple of weeks later, Martin said, every time I pick up something, I drop something, it's like my head knows what is there, but my hands won't work, it's like I've had a stroke. Following that, he had a brain scan and he diagnosed that the cancer had spread to the brain. And the consultant gave us the news that the 11 months now has reduced down to three months. And through that battle, Martin passed away nine days short of three months. And that was the
1: most lowest point of my life. That's devastating to hear. And how were we able to get back from that lowest point of your life to back to success? one of the things martin
2: was was he was my biggest cheerleader my mentor my teacher my my everything that gave me the strength education and helped me as equal to anybody and helped me to become the kind of girl i am now i said to him what happens when i have the dark lonely days who will be my light? And Martin used to say, the amount of light you've shone on a lot of people, you'll never have a dark moment. You've got everything, what it takes, everything you have inside of you, you go out and, and and people haven't really seen the gas properly yet. So you've got a lot more to offer. So just go through that. But what he did do, his dying wish was to keep others alive. And that was to raise awareness of pancreatic cancer. That became my mission to raise that awareness of the cancer and the work. And it was my mechanism to sort of keep going for the sake of the children and i did the campaign for it raised funds with it raised awareness i took a team of people up to the highest mountain of england and wales which is mount snowden And I said, if I had raised £10,000, I'm going to take people up there. We're going to do a high five to Martin to say that little wish you left before you left the world. We've fulfilled it. We've accomplished awareness. We've accomplished funds. We've done everything that he wished, but we've taken it to the heights. We did that. And that was part of my uh, chapter in my life of doing that kind of tribute to Martin as a closing part in my book which is called Loved, Lived, Lost, and Sickness and in Health Till Death Do Us Part. That was subtitled, Sickness and in Health was subtitled. And that was the last chapter in that book. And that allowed me to get my own health in shape, be strong again, to to carry through my work. And then I felt I needed to fine-tune the gazala that was gone through a difficult time of absent from the world of work and i took a retreat recharged and then i realized well, where was i where was my strength my strength was education right i've been out of action so what i need to do is learn again I then realized that all what I had been doing successfully, things have changed in the way we do business. And then I decided to take courses in digital marketing in technology in um, social media marketing. I used to be known as the marketing machine and then I thought I need to fine tune that and I became number one marketing machine because I made myself so current in the digital marketing space. I studied, I took courses, I advanced, I created my own website. I didn't want people to do it because I thought, no, I don't want to people confuse me with science I need to do this myself but I get how hard it is I'm going to do it and the cheer that drive that pilot light that was just barely flickering to keep alive I just fueled it with education the knowledge experiences mixing with the people doing good things following the people really rocking into spaces that things were happening to make sure I was present I was learning i was um executing that knowledge and suddenly before i know it as i say my book went number one bestseller in less than 24 hours of launch my number one marketing machine platform became visible i created an online course because i wanted to know that that is doable i can do it i can bring the whole 30 years of my experience so the world can get a piece of the action of the gas i did that and the bollywood what i used to teach classes for fitness from my own story from you know, from my own transformational journey, from being a big mama gas, clinically obese, BMI 30, uh, 29 over 29 weight over, oh, you don't want to know, but I was a size 18, and I transformed to a size 8 and 10. Three friends are shared, 30,000 strong audience, international fame through the marketing power of being visible, using social media, doing the marketing, and everything they always knew what needed to be done to be successful. And that has become an international title of mine, Gazala Jabin, the Bollywood Queen. And the other title, of course, Gazala Jabin, the number one marketing machine. And and these are because I worked it. I worked it hard day and night. Four o'clock, I was still doing calls to people, group networking, team building, globally cultural aware. And for asleep, sleep, I was still working. So it was a lot of sheer hard work, determination, and that desire to be bigger, better than anything because I had the ability to do it. I got God-given good body, a brain that was working in all order. It just needed the machine to be oiled and
1: fine-tuned. That's what I did. Sounds like you were the mechanic of your life to bring it from, you know, where it was, to where it is now. And Genie to be, to be the bodywood queen and the marketing queen. Genie, they're fantastic titles. But when you got to those titles, how did it feel? What was the nice thing was for me was people appreciating the work, but people's
2: transformational journeys in my training when i see people that come to me they're at crossroads and they don't know how to go from here to there or anywhere and to helping them coach and coaching which i did for 20 plus years and they say to me this is where i am this is where i need to be and they were lost to help them literally coming through one side of the factory if you like of the machine And then with all the the, the stuff that I did and finding out what they needed, where they wanted to go, understanding them, working with them from the different resources, the tools, getting them to get their own confidence back and to them walking out the other side of the, the, the factory, if you like, and becoming some amazing people and to see their success. I realized that I contributed towards that and they've become something that for me to making a difference and adding value to other people's success was that I had what it took to be able to part that good knowledge for others and to then suddenly you see your name. And and, and the funniest was when I saw my name uh, on the Hall of Fame uh, in 2018 with big superstar people like you, Les Brown, you Bob Proctor, Brian Tracy, some of these big names in the industry. And I found my little face in this Hall of Fame. I was like, okay, somebody photoshopped my face. And I put a Facebook post saying, okay, this is good, but who put me there? (laughs) And they went, no, nobody owned up to it. And then I got an email that I legitimately earned my position in the Hall of Fame in this area, in this arena, because they were looking at how current is somebody? How successful are they? What contribution have they done? What charitable stuff have they done? and i was i had won the corporate social responsibility award by one of the bbc tv dragons den program rachel Elner was the judge And that was how much money I helped to fundraise for my community projects, which at that time was £80,000. And today sits at over £180,000 because the Bollywood work that was shared. So it was giving back, it was being successful, being current and being visible in all areas of a proactive business person. And that's what earned me the position and then the titles. And I was um, awarded as um, an ambassador for the network marketing and direct sales industry. And before you know it, Aaron, trophies, awards, recognition, all this was coming. And there were things like I was not even aware of, but people realize you're impacting lives. You're making a change. You're you're supporting people's journeys of transformations and adding value uh, in business as well. And that's kind of like how it evolved to where I am today
1: it shows you how the work you do the visibility everything leads to trophies awards accolades and people actually seeing the success that you've put into you know those hard nights
2: yeah and you know one of the nicest awards in the simplest part was for me was when i was doing um, out in my country bumpkin Flanroost Roost area of north wales i was hired by the uh, rotarians and there was a first lady rotarian divisional superstar lady in her own right and she watched and she came over to me she said oh i do know about your work and i said oh thank you she said yeah remarkable work but could i just take you aside a minute and i was like sure and she had a chat and she said i've been hearing lots and everything but i'd like to present you with something and she presented me with the pin from the rotary club as it was the year of humanity and that to me touched my heart because my dad was a big community supporter of how do we help our communities and people of it and impact good stuff to it and and add value in giving in humanity and to get a pin be awarded in the year of humanity was to me was wow and my dad used to call me his vip I used to laugh at him and I used to say, well, dad, I, I should be a very important person. I'm your daughter. He said, no, 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 but you don't get it. What you are is you are my VIP as in very impressive Pakistani. And that still sticks with me. And people still know me
1: for VIP with a difference. I love that. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. um, where did the Bollywood burnout come from?
2: That was like burnout because of burning out calories. It was my own personal transformation. Like when I had sort of, I had the kiddie things and I was like, I one day looked at myself in the mirror. I was like, oh my God, how big did you get like that? How, where did you go wrong? What happened? I found myself not in the nice little fitness stage. I used to be in something. I was a big mama gaz and, and, and in my own office, I used to like at the end of the day, sitting behind a desk, sitting on the chair on phone calls all day, afterwards at five o'clock when all my phone calling was done i used to put the music for an hour i used to do my dancing and i did that at school i was had some private lessons by an indian dance teacher as well in my school days and i said to her don't tell anybody because as a muslim i'm not supposed to be dancing it's not well unseen upon and and i, I learned and then I, I i got myself back into fitness and that's how i made the personal transformation and my friends kept saying oh please show us how did you do your weight loss are you on some diet i said the only diet I'm on is my 80 20 Bollywood burnout burnout as in calories so you do 80% good the 20 you do bad of eating chocolate or wrong things cakes then you got forfeit the 20 into the Bollywood workout which is cardio workout 20 minutes minimum and that's the program I taught with my own recipes and um, I used to teach in colleges and schools and I used to be hired at schools for international study weeks because the children were learning about India and I used to be hired in to teach them some Bangra dancing and Bollywood dancing and fit side and culture and it just became international pure because they love the energy of the whole Bollywood India, music, fun, culture, fitness, happy vibes. and it became quite a quite a status without even trying to make it as a status, but just sharing
1: what people love here. I don't know a lot about Bollywood. Is it dancing, like sw- swiveling your hips, or uh, how it works? yeah?
2: So, so people used to confuse belly dancing with Bollywood dancing. So, Bollywood is actually coming from the film industry of India. So, we got in America, we got Hollywood. And everything. So India made movies, uh, which used to be in a place called Bombay, which is now called Mumbai. But when it was Bombay, it it became Bollywood, and so that became the film industry of India. So like if, if you imagine that Hollywood make a hundred movies in a year, let's say Bollywood make probably thousand. It was like much bigger scale of movie scene, and every movie used to have Bollywood dancing, all that running on the hilltops, the boy girl meet, you know, each other on the hilltop, and and all this and then it was like village dancing and happy jolly weddings and celebrations and the bangra dancing of the folk music and that was just part of India in a dance format in movies and culture
1: and that's what I shared with the, with the, with the people yeah. In learning the dance and getting used to the culture, did you feel that you were more associated with India than Pakistan? I know the cultures are probably very similar but did you feel like you were able to connect with it because of the dancing and what you were teaching?
2: I think what it was, because I was living in in Wales, which was, there were not many Asian people, I was missing my own culture. Of course, as I say, I I grew up and I only ever knew my own culture. But when I left the Married Martin, I was in a Western culture, I did miss my own culture. So when I was able to bring some of my music for myself, I kind of felt like I was at home. And I mean, India is my ancestry as well, but India and Pakistan did fight against the border over the Kashmir. But what I was able to do was bring India together with Pakistan. a Pakistani girl doing Indian dance on western soil was bringing you know uh, communities together through the music of culture and societies in western soil and I also felt at home because I could wear my clothes and have a Bolly Jolly dance and 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 I was interviewed by a friend of mine Roy Jenkins on his radio station the first time he said we have our very own Bollywood queen Ghazala Jabin and I was like oh And that's how the Bollywood Queen title was given, and it became an international symbol and status. And I even had a friend of mine who sent me a message, said, um, gave me a message, sorry, by his uncle who was the longest epic drama of India, Mahabharata. And his uncle from there, he said, would you pass our congratulations to Gazala for putting the India Bollywood on the map of North Wales? And that was lovely to get that. But it, it always took me into my culture that I was missing and I shared it, but what was lovely is the Western folks loved it, they embraced it. It, it just created happy scenes and good environments. I mean, I, I've taught in like team building exercises, I mean, I used to get in colleges, guys in suits and ties, I used to say, take your tie off, take your jacket off, here's your sticks, let's do the dance. I had the girls, the boys, you know, all having a Bolly Jolly bungalow dance. And that's what I did. And it just it just brought fun to life and work and society and community and and happiness within it.
1: Right now, are you able to bring it to the Zoom and to the internet where people can see? Yeah, <laughs> so
2: of course. Well, yeah, exactly. Because all this stupid COVID lockdowns, right? So of course, it limited my my studio at the college. So I couldn't teach in the classes that I used to teach. So um that meant that. Uh, even the, like the local the council and the registered approved contractor for Bollywood, we did Bollywood beach party at dance because of the water sports where I live by the seaside. So uh, I was hired to do that and big extravaganzas and all this. And so they said, OK, because of COVID, we want to still keep the fitness, education, knowledge and everything going. Could we hire you to do an online Bollywood? So because there was so much demand and people were still missing my classes i kept getting messages after messages come on guys you can't be semi-retiring we need you back on the scene and that's exactly what happened was bollywood burnout became bollywood burnout online so now people join in with my classes online they just get onto the either zoom or my private group and become a member they i teach them and i show them how to cook good dishes and they learn dancing and they stay fit and have fun and it's gone very virtual and very everywhere yeah
1: what is your favorite dish to cook
2: mine i actually like my chicken boona it's called the bollywood burnout boona and it could be for vegetarians fish pescatarians or you know for meat eating people so It's my world-famous Gazala Masala. Did did I ever tell you about that, Aaron, about that? Oh, my Lord. Right, so the funniest thing ever happened is that I have the world-famous Gazala Masala, which is mine. Friends of mine, I went to their house once, and I said, oh, and they said, when you come over, could, could you like cook us a curry? I said, yeah, sure, and they went, I said, the only thing is, I bet you don't have my gazala masala spices. And they went, no, we wouldn't have that. We've got this jar of something. I said, all right, forget that. I said, look, I'll bring my own gazala masala. And I went and took my mum showed me the mixed of spices of the turmeric, the chili powder, the paprika, and a few other little sort of secret dips with it. Anyway, I took my little my my little Tupperware thing of my spices and I cooked them a curry. They had then emigrated, and they uh, some friends were going to go over to see them in uh, when you know to their place. said you want anything bringing from the uk and they went yeah we like this sauce that sauce tea bags of this make but we we don't we run out of gazala masala so this friend from london was trying to find out and they said where would we find it i said no no they said it's gazala masala anyway so this friend of them went on internet went to every cash and carry place. They went to every Indian shop. They searched high and low on the internet. And they said, look, we've been everywhere to find you the gazala masala, we cannot find it. And my friend said to me, no, 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 it's gazala. Our friend is her masala, it's her own masala. And they went, oh, what? we've been searching on the internet. So my friend said to me, she said, do you know that you ha- you're you already world famous with your famous, world- famous gazala masala and you didn't even know? I said, I'm gonna brand it. And that's exactly how it became the branding of gazala masala somewhat 15 plus years back and it's my own mom's home spice mix wow that sounds awesome (laughs) i've got to brand that and get that marketed as well
1: aaron it probably tastes probably tastes as well as uh, gorgeous as well too oh
2: you'd love that i'll have to send you some over (laughs) a (laughs) mild version (laughs) yeah so that that's how it became so again i'd I don't mean to be like an entrepreneur in things, but whenever I kind of do it, I can never do something simple. It's just within me that everything has has got to be done in style. It's got to be uh, energy, it's got to be exciting, and you got to have the sizzle about what you do. And and people got to like that whatever you do has got to be like a fun party in what you do, that it's uplifting vibes and happy, jolly things. And people are fed up of dark, cloudy people around bringing pessimistic side to things. I'm
1: just like, come on, people, lighten up and have a good time. That's me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and probably that's the ingredients of what makes you an amazing entrepreneur, what you just mentioned there. Possibly. <laughs> because people are like, you, you're crazy enough to do it. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I, I, I try to stop myself. I'm a
2: true Gemini. There's a gas 1, gas 2. The gas 1 is like deadly serious in business. When she's talking business, don't even cross the line. She's deadly serious about a contractual agreement. she got to sign up. But when you've got the gas 2, she's like, let's have a party. Let's sizzle some Bollywood, sparkle some dusting at Bollywood you know gold dust everywhere so there is definitely two of me that you got to pick the right one for the right reasons <laughs> you could get the wrong one in the wrong place <laughs> that could be disaster <laughs> yeah. I think for me, what I say to anybody and anybody that's even listening here right now to my mad story thinking, she's a crazy chick. But you know what? In life, if you ever want to do anything good, big and make an impact, do it crazy. Do it from your heart. Do it from your belief. Put some pizzazz in it. And in my case, put the gaz jazz in it and really really sizzle up the scene that people like kind of think I don't know what party they're on but I'm going over there it looks like fun and that's when people are on your scene because they want to hang around with good energy and that's what I create good energy in my space
1: we know so much about energy today it's like yeah but when we're in that person's space we can really feel their drive heart passion and their creativity in some way
2: yeah exactly and it's like it's like now people say to me, gosh, you've done the whole big time Bollywood. You've done the big number one marketing machine. What's your big thing now? And I'm like, oh, it's bigger than ever I've done in my life. And they're like, what do you mean you ain't stopped? You, you kind of haven't arrived at your destination. I said, no, success is a journey. It's not a destination. I'm still going. And they're like, why? Well, what are you doing now? So my my current sort of work right now is that my space of work is that, you know, when you feel like you get to a certain point, you think, where do we go from there, from here? But something bigger always comes your way because when your exposure of your work is big, I'm now a partner in a big setup of work, which is the biggest project to date. And with two other partners, we're actually building a city based on sustainability and compassion. Homes in for people to to be in a place where kids can be kids. People can have the young and the old mixing in a culture, bringing old school values in today's modern understanding. We have a research center that's being built in North Cyprus, and it's it's the four main interdisciplinary areas of this project of this research center is that one is life science. Everything to do with our health, well being, today's holistic approach to medicine, and incorporating the allopathic medicines as well, incorporating energy from renewable energy for people in space of energy of people. Also the environment, so the epigenetics that affect our DNA and how we are in society and how can we make our planet in the renewable, the cleaner, greener place to live in and take care of the planet. And also education, because knowledge, as I've shared in this story, knowledge is powerful, but applied knowledge is more powerful. If we know, learn and understand and share and grow, we can create that change for the better. And that part is is incorporating the city, which is going to be building university, medical center, schooling, global education in one platform um homes for people the homes have that renewable side the society of talks we we talk about ted talks and that we bring in the ngrc talks and that's breathing oxygen to talks bring in education and knowledge globally of all these areas and how people can make an impact and be part of it collaborate globally to create a better planet and a space for all of us and it's the the biggest project to date that i've ever had the good fortune to become as a number one marketing machine and you know um a big partner in in this whole thing so that's where my current efforts and energy and work is going into how did you
1: hear about this project
2: so it was that you know when you think that life is it and martin had passed away five years that i had stayed in my own space and and suddenly i had a message from a gentleman called jorgen said you don't know me but i was reading your book about martin and i'm sad to hear about your life and and situation and I pay my condolences, but your book is very inspirational, but very moving. So I said, and who are you and what do you do? And before we got talking, and then I found him as a person, as a physician of 36 years, in the field of holistic you know approach to well-being but from a medical doctor point of view and a scientist point of view and before I know it like you a guy I'm liking to hear and we we have become partners in life as well and something you don't even know where the world opens the doors from one to another together with another partner of ours another Jurgen and we are three people in this big movement of the next generation communities as part of our Next Generation Research Center and a movement that though we have over 400 researchers and scientists from across the world on our platform looking to to be working in the
1: rollout of the next lot of programs yeah wow that sounds exciting and being able to be part of a movement that can transform the world into a brand new world
2: yeah and and it's like my mom said to me you know she said that you know you've been lucky to have one man to love you in the 25 years being married to martin And for five years, you grieved and not ever had anybody even enter that heart space. But to allow them, for somebody who's respecting Martin, who's shown a great respect for you and has won your heart on second time round, you're very fortunate to have that. And she gave me her blessing. My children were like really made up. And I'm at a point where I'm every day is full of gratitude for who I'm with, where I'm at, the people around us, the places we're going, the people we're changing lives to. And I, as I always say, for me, all what has happened before was apprenticeship. Now we're getting into the serious movement and we've got our sleeves rolled up and we've got the right people that want to be part of this connecting with us. And it's magnetizing the right energy of people to the workplace that we're at to, to make this research center globally make a change with it. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I get the feeling
1: that when Martin said to uh, you, saying they haven't seen the real gas, I wonder is this now being able for people to see the real gas now, you know? I I truly think you're absolutely 100%
2: right. I truly believe that because I always feel that Martin is my guardian angel watching over because whilst I've been learning, while I've been learning from my own growth and development and everything, and here I am coaching people at all different levels, you know, facilitating programs, on a global scale, and to be in a lead in one of the major people in in this movement, I just feel I'm I'm now ready to serve at a at a refined gas and in a more wiser way. I feel I have the wisdom, the experience, the maturity, the giving, serving, and to leave a legacy to say, Hey, gas certainly made her mark in this life. And I, as I always say to people, together let's make a mark as we make a difference. And that's where I feel right now, where I'm at. And Always I feel Martin's hand in is always in this movement that he's watching over and saying, yeah, yes, you're ready. Go do your thing. And that's what I feel I'm at.
1: You probably feel blessed with everything that's coming with you right now, but you know, the feel that someone uh, upstairs is giving you a hand in some way.
2: I do feel that. I mean, you know, people have different spiritual meanings and movements. And you know something, when I, I told you when I was 20 years of age of my life, I was happy to have the knife to my neck to die for the love. Right. And for 25 years in a happy marriage with three beautiful children and and a a life where I've been blessed to have a partner that has toured me on and put me on the biggest pedestal and been a cheerleader and helped me to grow like I have done to to have all that and to be in a situation where the next partner in my life has said, I want you part of this movement with me. We're going to do this together. I couldn't be more blessed in every which way, every day. And the people, the awards, the recognition, I mean, my my latest award only a few months a few weeks back sorry was to be nominated awarded 400 successful global women in the world to 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 that kind of award as a success in a female leadership i was like wow how did that happen and to be a panelist on professional panelist as a panelist for finance and to be then part of sisterhood connect uh, you know with with ladies of all nations international these are things that certainly the the door opens one to another to another, and every day I i say thank you. And in my language, we say shukra alhamdulillah, and is thankful for the mercy of God up there for passing these ways. And all I want to do now, Aaron, is to help everybody to say, this is what I've come from. I've come from suppression to uh, you know, expression and now helping to make an impression, to make a change for others, pave the way for others and show them that anything is possible. If the desire, the want is deep down And you pilot light, you really want to flicker in some good flames to make warmth around the place, add the light, then it's all there. If you want it badly enough, it's doable because I'm a living example of it. Do you love dogs? I do, I have one. Uh, It's actually my daughter's. He's uh, a little labradoodle, daft as a brush. Um, Yeah, he's little mini labradoodle and people have seen my my instagram pictures of him with me or when i go walking with him he's there my little yap yap dog um yeah he he just thinks he he can close doors <laughs> you say, close, we say shut that door and he shuts it you say sit down he's and he's a actually the funniest thing about him is that he, we entered him into the dog competition And this is the funniest thing by the way because i used to work as a volunteer for rspca and we had a annual dog show but they asked us to do Bollywood for the dog show and I was thinking Bollywood for the dog show so we danced to who let the dogs out (laughs) in Bollywood style (laughs) on on a hilltop and our buddy the dog was entered in the competition year one he won actually the, as a winner for um uh, he did uh, acting which was we told him to play dead so you kind of sit him in the middle of the field and you say stay you walk away like you turn your back on him and you walk away he stays and then you turn around and you go bang and then he plays dead he won first prize for acting <laughs> wow it was <laughs> so funny. So he does these little party tricks but my daughter, she's um she's fourth year vet student to be and she taught him all this and she's I'm very proud of all three of my children because you know when When their life, their dad meant everything to them, it was like, how do I help my children in this difficult time to get, they are in midst of their education and a career changing part. For me, it was like holding back the dam, just holding my tears, but staying the strength to get the children across to the other side. And all three of them, my my eldest boy, he's um, qualified as a a product design engineer. He's working down in, um, in Brighton my second one he was into sports and also automotive engineering and he was at Loughborough Uni and he now works for a, a motorsport company and doing amazing things there. And then my daughter, she said to me, I told dad, I only wanted to work at the zoo. It was dad's fault. He wanted me to be a vet and said, I make a good vet. And look at me, all this hard studying, Mommy's hard work. Anyway, she's done really good. Four years, she's passed every exam and she's now on her final year. And then she's a fully fledged vet surgeon out there let loose to support, all the animals around what her work allows her to. Wow,
1: that's, that's brilliant shows you how the, uh, the owner and the dog are very similar so i think your labadoodle is very like you in some way okay hey, mad <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah mad he's <laughs> funny
2: i have two cats as well and they're my companions at home so when i've had my lonely moments and and difficult times they have been my companion and comfort through my grieving process and you know when i even did my book aaron there the were three reasons I did write my book. Not 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 just to write a book and make money, because it was never done for that. The three reasons were one, to handle grief and to tribute Martin for his dying wish to keep others alive, and two was to raise awareness for pancreatic cancer and the symptoms, and three to be the voice of those that lost their lives and they never got heard. So we kind of wanted to bring that awareness in my book, and that's what I did, and and that makes me very
1: proud to tribute in that beautiful. Way going out you know you know we think of books as you know write a book making a mo- making money but i like your ideas use it as a way to show people the voice and also tribute um you know yeah. your partner and also the work that's not being done as well totally totally absolutely
2: and you know i'm very blessed if people often say to me what well, things has stood you good as a person Well, mum and dad's basic good disciplines, grounding from young age was always good disciplines from the household that I came from. I mean, yeah, there were certain things they didn't like because of my cultural fights and stuff, but but the basic education of the love from a home and and things were really good. And to be then in a, a wonderful relationship and marriage with Martin was everything that you would want somebody to be your partner and cheerleader, business partner, life partner and a cheerleader to help you and say you're equal to anybody anywhere out there and don't let anybody tell you any different. That gave me confidence to work through it never feel lacking on things but just know that anybody can do it i can do it and martin helped me to do that and then the beauty of it is that all my wonderful friends that i met on the journey some are short-term live friends some are long-term friends that stick with you but everyone has served a purpose of the journey even if it's been short term They've been there to teach certain things or been something. They've been either good ways, some not so good, but they give me lessons along the way that made me get better as I moved on. And now I feel... I'm in a place where if I don't like a certain someone in their thinking or it doesn't resonate, I never argue about it like I used to. I usually just step aside and think, okay, that don't sit with me, but hey, they're entitled to that and I can step aside and move on without any conflict or fight. I just beg to differ. And and, and what's nice about that is that Martin and I were worlds apart from East and Western. He was a lot older than me. He was not religious, I was. And none of these things ever were a problem as two different people but the magic to that was that we accepted our differences and we gave respect to our individuality together we were in that space always and that was the magic of it
1: Gaz, if there was one piece of advice that you could help someone in their life either in any avenue and everything you've learned experience what would it be
2: I think the most important thing is truly look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself what do i really want in life what do i really want to do in life and what is stopping me and if there is things stopping them they need to reach out for somebody within the space that people want to be go reach out knock on the door be visible and say hi Uh, you don't know me but this is who i am i was looking at your profile I want to learn more and connect up don't be shy if you want it badly enough knock on the door be visible and speak out and and just really follow your dream want and desire if it's if it's strong enough you'll do it if you're not doing it and it's not achieving it's not strong enough
1: if you could look at yourself in the mirror and figure out what your superpower would be in the world what is this
2: really speaking the truth from within my own true beliefs and i also say to myself thank you for me being mad because mad and crazy allows us to step into spaces that might be just sometimes we're like oh my god what are they going to think about us when i gave up worrying about what they think, and i'm thinking i am unique I, there's not anybody like me and some days i can be fighting with gas one to gas two which day which one's coming out to play kind of thing but i think if we are true to ourselves and who we are well i think that in the mirror is enough for us to just fulfill it and don't pretend to be anything other than who you are, what you want to be. Does that make you feel happy? And the biggest thing is that if you think about decisions in life, and if you get stomach churning situation, that's not a good sign because stomach churning is not a good sign with acidity. But if you get goosebumps with excitement, that's a good sign. And my my three things for making any decision are: is think with your head because logic has to come in, feel from your heart because feelings move people, and go with your gut because the gut is your second brain and that will give you the signal of go with it if it feels right and that's that's what i would say to people
1: guys if people want to come and find you and learn more and listen and read your book where can they go and find you i'm on all social
2: media so gazala is my website which links to all my social media platforms and gazala is spelled g-h-a-z-a-l-a and jabeen is J A B E N gazala jabin and they can also find me as number one marketing machine dot uh, com which is n o one marketing machine number one marketing machine.com. i'm on all social medias people i would love somebody somewhere listening to this to in there is some part in their life that they need some guidance some direction some signposting some facilitating to reach out and say gaz They can call me Gaz if they come in in this way and to say, Gaz, I've heard about you. I've seen a little bit of your work. Here I am in my life and I need either getting fit through your Bollywood program or I need business training, coaching from your number one marketing machine, or I want to connect with you as somebody I'm inspired and watch my posts and things because I do share a lot of inspiration and general uplifting vibes. And then if they want anything to do with the Next Generation Research Centre and they want to participate in any of that programme to leave some kind of legacy and a mark and they want involvement, they can just reach out
1: and ask. And those are my three areas that I focus on mostly. It's been a pleasure chatting to the Bollywood Queens, the marketing machine. And thank you so much, Gaz, for sharing your story. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. And much respect to you and your show and um, uh, facilitating this uh, lovely podcast. Thank you. Bye.